Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. On Monday, I wrote this sermon within two and a half hours. I wrote the first 1,500 words of it. Within two and a half hours, and it was good. It was a good 1,500 words. That doesn't happen almost never that it's good the first time around. When I got to look at it towards Friday, I spent my time in between the time uh, between Monday and Friday, studying and studying. And I looked at it on Friday, and it was even better than I thought it was on Monday. And I added an additional 1,300 words to it this morning. And those were good, too. They were good because they're honest. And because I wasn't afraid. Because I was encouraged this week to speak the truth. The church overwhelmed me with encouragement you have said as a mandate that you want a pastor to speak the truth and to preach the Bible, and that's what you're going to get. I'm not going to focus on time. I am going to say what needs to be said. We meet for one hour once a week for worship. We meet on Wednesday. I'm not going to worry about getting it done within 30 to 35 minutes. If 35 is too long, leave. Leave. And I'll point you out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we meet once. Is there really a time limit to putting on God's word? What are we in such a hurry to do? Really? What are we in such a hurry to do? What did Jesus say about food? Do you get to food? What did he say about food? Just genuine food. We eat it and it goes out of the body. But that's what he said. But the word, Jesus is the bread of life and we feed on him and we will never go hungry. Jesus told his disciples, stop worrying about the loaves and start worrying about the bread of life. That's my message this morning to you. Um, I am convinced that if we take this series seriously, it can change our church forever. I'm convinced by it. I'm convinced that if we buy the book, which we have available in the vestibule for $5, it's exactly what we paid for them, and I think we're even eating the cost of shipping. I'm convinced that if you buy the book and read the book and make the pledges, it can change our church now, maybe you don't want to change our church, but I do. I want to see our church grow. I want to see our church deepen, and not just grow in numbers. I mean grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But the leaders can't be the only ones doing it. It is every last one of us. In your bulletin, you'll have this pledge. You can pull it out and keep it by you or leave it in there, but at the end of it, I'm going to ask you to sign the pledge. 
And this is a free church. You are not compelled to sign the pledge. In fact, if you don't believe the pledge, don't sign it. And if you don't intend on keeping it, don't sign it. Keep it and maybe sign it when you do intend on keeping it. But membership in this church must mean something. We are settled. We are comfortable. But Christianity is not comfortable. Jesus does not tell you to take up his couch. He tells you to take up his cross. And it was uncomfortable for him. So why in the world do we think it won't be uncomfortable for us? Church, let's get uncomfortable in a great way. You have a pledge. It's in your bulletin. Keep it by you. Theologians distinguish between two types of ways of viewing the church. They, they talk about the universal church and they talk about the local church. The universal church is the entire body of believers everywhere who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, converted from sin into Christ, and are now living in obedience to His commands. That is the universal church. But the local church is a local body of Christians who have covenanted, that is, that we are in an agreement with one another to administer the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and Baptism, who are committed to the faithful teaching of the Word of God, who are actively seeking to destroy sin in their lives, who are pursuing conformity to Christ, and who are caring for everyone, not only those in need, but especially other Christians. That's the local church. That's Northwest Baptist Church. But the question then is this. Are you a member of the universal church? You can't be a member of the local church. You cannot be a member of the local church you cannot be a member of the local church if you are not a member of the universal church. There is no such thing in Scripture of a member of a church who does not follow after Jesus Christ. It's not there. They are gotten rid of immediately. In fact, in Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira tried to be a part of the church and they weren't a part of the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit killed them. Dead. They died. Literally. Church is a serious thing. And being a member of a local church is a serious thing. The question we have to ask ourselves before we can ever talk about, am I a church member, is are you first a member of the church universal? So I ask you this morning, is Jesus your personal Savior. Not your mother's, not your grandmother's, not your dad's, not mine. Is Jesus your personal Savior? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is what Jesus say goes in your life? And do you know for certain that if you died today that you would spend eternity with Jesus? 
And some say you can't know for certain. John says to the contrary in 1 John 2, 3, you can know that you have come to know him if you keep his commands. Now, if you're not certain about your salvation, the corollary there is that you're not keeping his commands. That's the corollary. If you keep his commands, you can be certain that you're saved. I'm not certain that I'm saved. Then you're not keeping his commands. That's too easy. That is what the word says. The gospel is so wonderfully simple. It makes no bones. It does not, con it does not con con confuse us. It's not a question of whether we've met all of the, the, the religious rites of a religious system. It is so simple. Trust and obey. And if you do that, you can be certain that you're saved. Is Jesus your Lord? And you can know this by how you live. If you're not sure, before we move on any further with the talk about being a church member and meaningful church member and pledging to be a church member of this church, Northwest Baptist Church, before we talk about any pledges about pledging to this church, let's take care of some business in our hearts right now. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? And is he the Lord of your life? And are you certain that if you died... You would spend eternity with him. If you can say yes and don't answer out loud, but answer in your spirit, if you can say yes to that, then let's move forward with talk about meaningful church membership. But if you don't know what salvation is, there's no talk about membership for you right now. There is only talk about Jesus as your Lord. That's it. Follow me, says Jesus. So, over the next six weeks, we're going to put bulletins, or in our bulletins, a pledge. And we're going to pledge to commit ourselves to being a church member. Now, if you are saved, then there is no question about being a member of a local church. Not like someone in a country club paying dues, expecting the pastor and his staff to be like their valets or busboys. Not that we're here to make everyone comfortable and you get your version of music and I preach the exact length you want me to preach and our greeters greet you the exact way you wanted to be greeted because heavens knows they should have known you had a rough night. Or that someone didn't speak to you and that's what you, you don't come to this church to not be spoken to. Not that type of membership. That's a country club. But the membership that Jesus talks about in the Bible is like members of a body. You either are a hand or you're not. It is not corporate. It is corporeal of a corpse, of a body. We are a single body working together. I said working together to serve the body as a whole. Not looking out for our own desires, but putting the whole before the parts. Mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. The Northwest Baptist Church must be one body, not many. For there is one head, Christ Jesus, and we are his one body. If we want the Northwest Baptist Church, I said if we want the Northwest Baptist Church to be the body of Christ, then we must commit ourselves to becoming a functioning church member. 
Our goal over these next six weeks is to become one body with one head, working in unity to glorify Christ Jesus. Do you want to be a God-glorifying church? If we want to be a God-glorifying church, then we must commit ourselves to God first and overlook our diversity. Forget about Republican and Democrat. Forget about black and white. Forget about builders and millennials and old and young. Every one of us, not those who've been here, every one of us has to commit to being a church member. Well, who is this series for? The series is for everyone. If you're not a Christian, this series should challenge you to be a part of God's body, the church. If you're a believer, but you're waffling between the world and the church, looking for God in the woods, but not the church, this series will hopefully convict and convince you that God has no use for amputated body parts. If you're trying to be a part of God's church, away from the church, you are a dead, amputated body part. You are a gray hand. You are a gray foot, rotting away from the body. Our God is triune. None of them do to themselves. The glory that the Father has is given to the Son, the Spirit gives honor and glory to the Son, and the Son gives all honor and glory to the Father. Our God is a unified God, though not in uniform, all looking for the other-directedness love, not looking for their own glory, though they all deserve it. Maybe you've been attending our church for quite some time, but you're not sure if you're a member. Or you're not sure what it means to be a member of our church. This series should hopefully encourage you to become a covenanting member with the Northwest Baptist Church. We've got a lot of attenders here. And we've got a lot of members here. And we've got people who come and they go and they come late and they leave early. And I don't know you and you don't know me. And we don't know one another. And I don't know your name. And I don't know that you're suffering. And I can't pray with you. And I can't be your backbone. And you can't be mine. And so you are a decorpulated church member. You're away from the body. You're away from the head. You come and you go. But Jesus wants us to come and to be and to be together, and to be one body. This series should urge those who've been a longtime church member to recommit themselves to the church in a new and a fresh way. If you're young and you're not sure about commitment, this series should challenge you to commit yourself to our church the way the elder members here have been committed for decades who when it got tough, they stayed, who when we went broke, they paid, and who when we suffered, they prayed. I just made that up. That was good. Don't miss that. <laughs> the point is that they stayed. Millennials, the truth is you're a transient generation. You move every two years. You change jobs every two years. You change marriages every two years. And the devil sits back and he says, yes, that's a generation after my own heart. You're committed to nothing. 
Millennials, I love you. I'm one of you. We're committed to nothing. We are like the wind of the air. We go and we don't know where we're going. We're exactly what Friedrich Nietzsche said would happen to the postmodern generation. Once God died, there would be no up and down, no left and right. We don't know sex. We don't know family. We don't know work. We don't know loyalty. We don't know any of this. We're smart and we're nice and we've got more than any generation that's ever existed in America, but we're useless. See what happens when you guys let me preach? Thank you. I will. This series should urge all of us. All of us should be challenged. Maybe you're already a perfect church member. That's great. I'm not. And truth is, you're not either. If any man says he's without sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him, says John. So if you're perfect, you don't need to work on anything. You're a liar, and the truth doesn't live in you. Every one of us needs to work on something. But join the rest of us in our commitment to begin to grow together as the Northwest Baptist Church. What does a functioning church member look like? A functioning church member, that's our topic today. What do they look like? A functioning church member is first and foremost a believer who has committed his life to conforming to Christ. He didn't come down and fill out a card He has been serving Jesus as Lord of his thoughts, of his footsteps, of where his little hand goes, of what his little eyes look at, of what his little ears hear. He is a functioning member who serves Jesus in every part of his life. He gives money. I said he gives money. He gives his money. He gives his money to help support this church financially so that his church can fulfill the Great Commission. He serves his church with his time and his spiritual gifts. Everyone knows and loves him because he is present for worship, active in service, and he can be counted on. A functioning church member is one who ministers to his fellow members. He seeks to encourage the younger members, to honor the older members, to pray with the suffering, and to rejoice with the rejoicing. He shares the gospel with others. He has a sense of eternity and is concerned enough to do his part to share the gospel with everyone he meets because he's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. He studies the Bible and other Christian literature. He knows that Satan is vying for his intellect and his emotions and his will and that every conversation he's in, every book he reads, every comment he makes, everything he does counts. He is able to demolish demonic strongholds of thought because he studies to show himself approved of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And his last role would not be possible if it weren't for his fulfilling all the others. He is a blessing to the church. He doesn't serve by compulsion. He doesn't have to be forced to be here. He just is. He trusts the Lord and that's good enough. He knows that nothing is impossible for God, so he's hopeful. He's not optimistic, he's hopeful. Optimism is for someone who doesn't believe in God. Hopeful is for someone who trusts in a God who will do what he said he will do because he's faithful. That's the difference. His church is blessed by him because he is present, because he is active, because he is functional, and we are a blessing to him. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 12. 
Now we get to our passage of the day. I'm convinced that the passage speaks for itself, and there's not much that needs to be added to it. Let's let God's word speak to us right now. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, Where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If you're a foot, it's because God made you a foot. If you're a hand or a mouth or an eye, it's because God made you. Accept what your gifts are, accept what your role is, and be the best for his glory. If all were a single member, if everybody preached, if everybody sang, Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. That means we show grace to one another. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. This is what he's driving at. But that the members may be the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Individually, we are each a member of one body. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, teach us to be one body. Amen. I want to look at five things that break down our pledge this morning. Number one, they're all going to come in a form of a question. Number one, do you support our church financially? Number one, do you support our church financially? Financially. Here are the excuses I hear. 
The main one I hear is that there is no principle of 10% giving in the New Testament. They didn't give 10% because we're not under law, we're under grace. So there is no New Testament mandate to give 10%. Implication, I don't have to give. Acts 2, 45 through 47 says this. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You are right if you think there's no 10% command in the New Testament. I want to tell you, you've won the battle on that one. You're right. The Bible doesn't tell us or command us to give 10% of our finances. You're right. But the church in the New Testament gave everything they had and they were glad to do it. They gave everything they had and they were glad to do it. And when God saw that church, when he saw that they did not have an idol called money, and that they were willing to give out of their money, out of their finances, that he was going to be first. What does it say? He added to their numbers day by day. Why would God add to our numbers if money's still our God? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. The point is this, says Paul. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You don't reap because you don't sow. I'm not making any promises. If you give us 100 a day, don't, you're not getting back 10,000, not from me at least, or whatever the principle is. That's a lie. You're not going to get that. What you're going to do is you're going to be obedient, and that's going to be good enough. You're going to be obedient. And you're going to be able to go home at night and say, God, I trust you more than money. This money that you gave me, it doesn't come from me. It comes from you. God, I love you more than this money. The person who uses the idea or this excuse that there's no principle of tithe in the New Testament proves that his heart is not where it should be. Listen to what the text says. God doesn't care even about your giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, as much as he cares about the heart of the person who gives. Some of you are giving reluctantly or out of compulsion, and that's not the point this morning. The point is that God promises to bless those who give and who do so cheerfully. If you want that, there's the formula. It's simple. Other excuses. I give in other ways. I drew on my whiteboard this week. Draw a hard line between giving financially and serving because they're not the same. People say, I give in other ways. Or the church is only after my money. Or I don't make enough money to give. Or I don't see any return on investment. Or I don't even know what I'm giving to. You're giving to a church that's struggling to manage every penny that it has so that this church can fulfill the Great Commission. All of these other excuses are nothing more than a thin veneer covering the rotting heart of greed and covetousness and a lack of trust. I said all of these other excuses are nothing more than a thin veneer covering the rotting heart of greed and covetousness. Amen. If the root of all evil is the love of money, then the root of righteousness is the heart of a cheerful giver. 
Bible says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone to anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house. Zacchaeus didn't give away everything. He still had some. The rich young ruler was told to give away everything. Zacchaeus gave away half. Now, God blessed Zacchaeus, but he told the rich young ruler, give everything away. So it can't be an issue of the amount. It can't be an issue of the amount. The issue is where your heart is. Zacchaeus gave away half of what he had because he probably had stolen it. And he desired Jesus more than he desired money. But the rich young ruler desired money more than Jesus, and he showed it by keeping his possessions. Do you desire Jesus more than money or money more than Jesus? Number two, we have to serve. So there's a difference between giving financially and serving. Excuses I hear, I'm too busy. I work on Sunday. I'm not outgoing. The church doesn't have any place for me to use my talents. Acts 2.47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They made it a point to be together and serve one another, make food for one another, give food and gifts to one another, and share with one another. You're too busy to serve because your priorities are on yourself and not on the things of God. You're not outgoing when it comes to ministering because it makes you uncomfortable, because it's going to cost you something, because people and their problems don't fit into your busy schedule. That's why you don't serve. You don't know what your gifts are because you're confused by talents and gifts. Every Christian's been given a gift. This has nothing to do with your talent for music or for mathematics or for writing or for organization or anything else. The gifts of the Spirit are encouragement, faith, hope, love, preaching, teaching, healing, speaking in unknown tongues, prophesying. But the greater gifts are faith. I will add to that apostles. I'll add to that prophets. Because just like tongues are gone and apostles are gone, so too are the miraculous gifts. Or a ministry for spiritual discernment. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in a miraculous way. And Jesus says of that generation, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. The only time you're going to trust me is when you see me do something miraculous. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man said, as he looked over into heaven, as he was in hell, he looked over into heaven and he said, please send me back from the dead. If I go as a dead person to my lost loved ones, they'll believe. And Abraham says, let them listen to the Bible. He says, let them listen to the prophets. If they don't believe the Abraham and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody comes back from the devil. You're worried about spiritual gifts, a miraculous power before you serve God? Paul says, go after the greater ones, faith, hope, and love. You know what an amazing gift of the Holy Spirit is? When you get diagnosed with cancer and you say, God is better and I trust him even though he slays me. That's a Christian gift of the Spirit. That is amazing. How could you do that? How could you, the God that you serve, you served, and he gave you everything, and now he's taken it away, and you still love him? Oh, the Holy Spirit is so glorious.
Jonathan Lehman says in an article that he wrote this week on the Gospel Coalition entitled, Your Seven Job Responsibilities as a Church Member, he says this, Did you know, ordinary church member, that Jesus has given you a job? Your elders have a special office, to be sure, but so do you, ordinary church member. And Jesus has given you elders in order to train you to do your job. And then he lists seven of those jobs. And here's the first one. You attend church regularly. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. That's why it's our verse for the year. Some weeks it looks like a barren desert. Other weeks we're full. We're CEO Christians. Christmas and Easter only. We come when it's convenient. We come when it works into our schedule. But our job, you say, well, I'm not using my gifts. Your job, one of your jobs is to be here regularly. He goes on to say, you help preserve the gospel. You help affirm gospel citizens. You find out about people in their lives. You attend members' meetings. You disciple other church members. You see that young person or that person who's struggling with their faith, and you go to them, and you make yourself a part of their life, and you say, call me, brother, or call me, sister. I'll be your shoulder right now. You can lean on me right now. You know why? Because I love Jesus, and he died for you, and he died for me, and we're going to do this together. You share the gospel with outsiders. These pews can be filled in. People have suggested that we, we, we cut off several people from different walks of our church have suggested that we cut off the balcony. I'd love to do it. I'd love to have everyone down here. But there's a way to fill up this bald spot and that bald spot and that bald spot and that bald spot. And it starts by you being here every Sunday. And then it starts by you telling others to come with you. Some are doing that and their bald spots getting hair. They've had a trans hair transplant in some parts of our church. Well, I can't use my gifts. I've been given the ability to, to play the piano. How many churches have men and women living in sin, but because they can play a piano, they serve every Sunday? God doesn't care about your ability to play the piano. Do you serve him in righteousness? Right now, there's a job for you to do. Go and share the gospel. Evangelize. Bring someone to church. Go and pick them up. Do you serve? The last one he says is this, and you follow your leaders. We're going to be committed to being transparent to you. Third, do we evangelize? Excuses I hear, I'm not good at talking to people I don't know. I'm not as confident in theology as my pastor is. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about Jesus with people. Everyone I know is already saved. If I talk about these things at work, I'll get fired. I do evangelize. I invite people to church, or I share what the Lord has done for me, or I share my possessions with my neighbors. Great. Some of the most giving people in my world are my atheistic neighbors. They're more giving than I am. What does that have to do with eternity? Do we evangelize? Romans 10, 14 through 17. But how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? We want to hear them say, Jesus, I want you. You're the propitiation for my sins. I don't get to God unless I get you Jesus. Paul says, how do men call upon him? How do men call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without a preacher? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. And preacher there doesn't mean me. It means you. And you. And the ones in the back. And the ones taking care of our little baby children. Acts 8, 1 through 4 says this. The whole church shares the gospel. Watch this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from that house to this house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What's interesting about that? The apostles weren't the scattered group. But those who were following the apostles were the ones doing what? Preaching the word wherever they went. That neighbor in your cubicle, that husband in the bed next to you, that wife in the bed next to you could be going to hell. Speak up. Have you put your trust in Jesus you say you believe, but believe is not trust. Trust has feet, and you don't walk after Jesus. Do you have trust in Jesus? Other excuses. We have, to, we have to study. We have to go on, and we have to study. Number four. An excuse as I hear is this. Theology is not my thing. I don't understand all the concepts and words. Buy a dictionary. I haven't been called to be a pastor or a theologian. I have faith. This is the one I hear the most down here. I have faith. That's all I need. All I need is faith. Thank God that he didn't leave us with that message, but he left us with preachers. And he left us with a word to read. Because Christianity is a reading religion. It's the very reason why each and every one of you Americans can read. Because the founding fathers believed it was important enough for you to be able to read scripture for yourself that you can read and write. Acts 17, 11, and 12. Now the Berean Jews were more of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, that is, passion. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Did you notice what I noticed? The Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, because they studied and learned the word. What made them noble is that they cracked open their Bible and they answered the question, what does this text mean? And how do I apply it to my life? You don't have to study. I want to say that. You don't have to study. And God doesn't have to use you to share his gospel with others and you'll never see his power. You don't have to study and your children can run into the loving arms of the atheist and the naturalist and the Buddhist and the new spiritualist and the Muslim and the postmodernist and the homosexual and the transgender. You don't have to study. But the rest of the world and the rest of the religions are and your children will run into their arms because they're willing to answer the questions. I'm here today because I had a father who can answer the questions. You don't have to study though. You don't have to study, and the devil can build stronghold after stronghold in your life, preventing you from being able to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. 
You don't have to study. And the devil can take you captive by the hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world. You don't have to study, and you can continue to be part of the problem rather than a part of the solution in this God-forsaken world and in the dying marriages and in your depression-ridden hearts. You don't have to study, though. That's the good news. But you can continue to live a meager existence, emaciated spiritually, when you could be living off the healthy diet of the Word of God right here in front of you. But you don't have to study. Or you can study and show yourself approved of God, a workwoman or a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or you can study and be a participant in revealing righteousness of God, which is from faith to faith, preaching the good news to the nations that all who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord will be saved. That can be you. Finally, I ask you this question. Are you a blessing to others? Are you a blessing to others? 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Paul says this. Do your best to come to me soon. I want you to read this passage for just a second. Hear this passage. A man's in prison at this point, And he's about to die. And he's alone. And he's an apostle of God. The greatest missionary to ever walk the face of this earth is now gloriously suffering the sufferings of his Savior by all men turning their face from him in the midst of his most needed time. And he's sitting there in prison. And all he asks for is, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in my ministry. Imagine the cold, damp, dark, stinking, filthy, miserable, uncomfortable prison cell of the first century. Here's Paul, an apostle of God, sitting there waiting for a crazy man to execute him because he's committed to Christianity, to the way. And Paul is alone. What blessings are left in this life for him? Nothing but the tenderness of friendship to comfort him in these last moments. Demas has deserted him. He loved the world more than the sufferings of Christ. And everyone else in Paul's life abandoned him at the first sign of trouble. Demas is said to be judged as a deserter of God, but those who have abandoned Paul, he forgives. The others, he forgives. Every blasphemy will be forgiven men except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And here sits Paul forgiving those who've deserted him. Only Luke has remained, and I suspect that Luke was a great comfort, probably the greatest comfort at that moment in Paul's life. A friend who was there, a friend who remained when everyone else had left him. So the question I leave you with, are you a Demas or are you a Luke? Are you going to be a source of discouragement to our church, to our people, and to your leaders, and to your brothers, and to your sisters? Are you a Demas or are you a Luke? 
Are you going to leave this church in the moment of its greatest need? Do you love more what the world can offer you than what the church can offer you? Or are you a Luke? Are you going to stand by our side in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our transition? Or are you going to be a deserting Demas? I tell you, Luke was a blessing to Paul. You can be a blessing to us. Be a functioning church member. Take out your pledge if you would. It's the pledge in the middle. You don't have to hold it up. It's the pledge in the middle of your bulletin. This pledge was written by Tom Rainer, and it has been a great blessing in my life and a great challenge. And the first pledge, and I only want you to make it if you mean it. Only write it if you, if you mean it. I want you to take the pledge home with you this morning. I don't need you to hand them in the offering plate. Because number one, we're not going to count them. And number two, talk is cheap. You'll show us by how you keep it. Here's what the pledge says. I like the metaphor of membership. It's not membership as in a civic organization or a country club. It's the kind of membership given to us in 1 Corinthians 12, which says, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Because I am a member of the body of Christ, I must be a functioning church member. I will give, period. I will serve, period. I will minister, period. I will evangelize, period. I will study, period. I will seek to be a blessing to others, period. And I will remember that if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. I will be a functioning church member. I want to challenge you to sign that this morning. If you don't sign it, ask yourself why. What part in that covenant is unreasonable? Come and talk to me. I'm very reasonable. I'm very gracious. You can make a, a, a meeting for me this week. I would love to meet with you. You can call me. You can email me. But if there is a part in that, I would love to know what part of that pledge is unreasonable. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your church and we are your body. Unite us. Lord Jesus, the body has one responsibility and it's to protect the head. It's to beautify the head. Lord Jesus, do we love you? If we love you, we'll commit ourselves to a local church. We're going to be here when the doors open. We're going to serve. We're going to get involved in other people's lives. We're going to get unsettled. We're going to invest in one another. We're going to give of our money, God. We're going to show you we love you more than money. Lord, this is your church. And if you don't want this to happen, it won't happen. Your Holy Spirit lives among us today. And if you want this to happen, God, it'll happen. No one can stop it. No bitterness can stop it. No anger, resentment, or rivalry, or jealousy can stop it. This is your church.
convict us of our sins and make us love this church to be a beautiful body to present you as beautiful our head. We love you, Jesus. Amen.